I speak to you in the name of one God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen. Late one January night in 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. sat by himself in the kitchen of his Montgomery home. He had a cup of coffee by his side, and he just hung up the phone uh, from an anonymous caller, threatening to kill him if he didn't leave town. This wasn't the first call, wasn't going to be the last call, but that night he could feel the darkness of despair creeping in over him. King, who had just turned 27, was serving as the pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and was helping lead the Montgomery bus boycott. About a month before this particular phone call, Rosa Parks had refused to give up her seat on the bus, and threats of violence and death had increased, sometimes 30 to 40 calls a day. And he had reached a point when the forces against him just felt impossible to overcome. And he reflects on that moment in a book that he would like, that he would write in 1958 called Strive Toward Freedom. And this is what he says. I was ready to give up. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared, and I was ready to face anything. Three days later, a bomb exploded at the King home. And thankfully, King, his wife, and his then-infant daughter were all unharmed. And a group of King's followers showed up at the house, and they were ready to get revenge. Or they were filled with anger. And King spoke to the crowd, and he tried to call them out of their anger, help channel that away from retaliation and towards this path of nonviolence. And I've been thinking about how that interaction might have been different, or how his response to the bombing might have been different had the kitchen table experience not happened. Maybe he would have joined them in their calls for revenge, or maybe even more realistically, he would have said, that's enough, that's it, I've got to keep my family safe, this is too dangerous, and maybe he would step away from the spotlight. Well, we'll never know the what-ifs and how that would have played out, but that night in the kitchen, it was an epiphany moment for King. It had a profound impact on him that he would reflect on multiple times over the course of his life. And in the, in the church calendar, this time of year is epiphany. It's a time when our readings are really rich in showings, appearances, manifestations of who Jesus is. And it starts with the star, leading the Magi to the manger, and then in Epiphany we often hear stories like Jesus' baptism, his first miracle at the wedding of Cana, the calling of the disciples, and it always ends with the transfiguration, where the glory of Christ is seen on the mountaintop by Peter, James, and John, like in that great window over the doors there. And these are all aha moments. Having an Epiphany is like aha, like a light bulb going off. When it's clear for those who encounter Jesus, at least in that moment, who he is as the Son of God. 
And today we get this story from the Old Testament, the story of Samuel, the prophet being called by God as a young boy, and it pairs so well with the interactions between Philip and Nathaniel as they are called by Jesus to be disciples. Each one of these stories is a story of recognition, of experiencing being known by the divine, of hearing the name called, of experiencing being seen and known and heard, and then responding to that with an openness, a curiosity to want to know and to learn more. But did you notice, too, that in both stories, the responding to these calls, it almost doesn't happen. I want to hover over that first Samuel story for just a second. So Samuel is a young boy. He's a child. And he's serving in the temple uh, of Shiloh under Eli's care. And the temple at Shiloh, it's where the Ark of the Covenant was being housed at the time. And Eli was a priest serving the temple, helping lead the Israelite community. And we get this kind of comedic back and forth. Here I am, you called. No, I didn't. Go back to bed. This happens over and over again before Eli realizes that it's God speaking. And this turns out to be a turning point both for Samuel and for Eli. Samuel's going to take up the mantle of being the prophet leader of the people, while Eli's role is really at its end. In fact, the first words... God speaks to to Samuel are words of judgment against Eli and against Eli's family for the ways that they've been missing the mark. Even though Eli's day in charge is passing, he has a role to play, though, because he knows what to do when God appears. Even though it says visions are rare, Eli is able to help Samuel discern that this is the voice of God. They need each other. Samuel's going to be the future Eli is about to be the past, but in that present moment, they need one another. And as hard and humbling as it may be, Eli recognizes something, which I think we all have to come face to face with on some level, at some point in our lives. And it's this, that as people of God, we can't be known for our nostalgia. We can't only cling to the way things were and what was. We must be known by our hope. We are a people of hope. We're Easter people. Eli faces this reality. And I think there's a challenge in here for us to be ready to do that ourselves when it comes our time. Hearing this story of God speaking to a young boy, it's a powerful reminder that it's not just grown-ups who live lives of faith. In fact, often our young people be better able to sense the presence of the divine through what they notice in a story that they're hearing for the very first time, when maybe that story just kind of seems rote, like, yeah, 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 we already know what's going to happen. Kids are also so great. They're quick to ask questions that we're probably a little bit too embarrassed to admit we don't know, or we're embarrassed to ask ourselves. And what a blessing we have to see children grow up in real time in an intergenerational community like perish. We need them, and they need us. At St. John's, and at church in general, we get to be this messy, beautiful learning lab for walking together in our lives of faith, extending grace, welcoming someone who's kind of sitting on the outskirts by themselves, praying with and for one another. 
This is where we might be able to find our own identity, our own experience of Christ in our midst. Maybe you recognize that in someone who's in the pew near you or across the table at a parish lunch. But these kind of practice rounds that we get in church on week after week, they also help tune our senses to better recognize and serve Christ in the world out beyond our little corner of 16th Street. And I think that's where the story about Philip and Nathaniel and Jesus comes into play. While it makes sense that we might hear the voice of God speaking at the temple, encountering the holy, being seen, being known by Christ, it's just as likely to happen where we least expect it. Philip has met Jesus, and he recognizes something here. And so he goes to tell Nathaniel, his friend, we found him. We found the one that all the prophets have been talking about. It's Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth Joseph's son. And then comes one of the snarkier lines from the Bible. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But maybe there's a little twinge there of something more than snark. Surely the Messiah isn't from those people. Who among us hasn't generalized in such a way about something? I know I definitely have. Ranging from snark, like those Patriots fans, or to, you know, the more sinister people from that country, or people from that political party, or with that level of education. I wonder how many times I've missed out on something meaningful because of my own arrogance or ignorance. Philip hangs in there, though, and he says three really powerful words. Come and see. There's no, well, let me tell you, Nathaniel, why I think this is really the case and why you're wrong. Instead, he just extends an invitation. And to Nathaniel's credit, Nathaniel accepts. He does come and see. And it's not long before he experiences, to some degree, what Philip did. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Jesus knows him. And in letting himself be known, Nathaniel's able to get a glimpse of who Jesus really is. I think our stories this morning trying to call us into a deeper sense of community this epiphany. We need one another. And it is a blessing to be in a community with people who are different than we are, instead of being stuck in silos of similarity. Because that can help us make better sense of what we're experiencing. It can help us name the holy in our lives. We get to say to one another, come and see what I've experienced. And we help one another stay grounded in hope when so much of what's outside these walls in the world is against that. The story that I opened with of Dr. King praying in his kitchen, it may seem like a very individual epiphany experience that only kind of a privileged few will get to experience, but while he was in that kitchen alone that night, what led King to that moment and what would drive and sustain him over the next 12 years of his all-too-short life was his faith community, a place where he could seek to know and to be known by God. Lord, you have searched me out and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You discern my thoughts from afar. 
You trace my journeys and my resting places and are acquainted with all my ways. Come, see. 